This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. We're seeking to be approved of God as workmen who are not ashamed by learning what God's word says. And if you're joining us for the very first week, this is the Bible line. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. And if you have a question that you'd like to discuss from the word of God or an issue you're facing that you'd like biblical counsel on or a challenge in your ministry, feel free to call us. Again, the number locally is 525-1859. For our internet users, the toll-free number is 877, the call letters WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We get a lot of emails that come in, and people uh, want us to answer. And if you want to email us here directly into the studio, it's TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we got some exciting news this morning in staff meeting. Um, uh, it's a little bit early to be talking about it, but come next March, we're having Answers in Genesis's uh, Ken Ham, who's going to be speaking in the area. Yes. And uh, we're working on the possibility of uh, getting him to actually come into the studio and do kind of this uh, uh, call-in program like uh, we do on Tuesdays, except this would be on a, on a Monday. So we'll have more details about that. Um, In the meantime, we do have a number of questions that have come in. There was a caller that wanted you to expound on something you said in your message on Sunday that had a profound effect on this listener. Uh, And that was that when people try to deny that Jesus Jesus was the Messiah and God, the best argument is the resurrection. Such a simple statement, but so powerful that many have been converted by this evidence. Well, that's true. And so when you look at the preaching, say, in the book of Acts— the centrality of their preaching is the resurrection. Uh, crucifixion, obviously, was not unique to Jesus. Uh, tens of thousands of people were crucified at different times in human history, sometimes in mass numbers, like in 70 AD, when Titus Vespucian came down and overthrew Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of people were crucified. In either case, what made Jesus's crucifixion so unique is the resurrection, because the resurrection is described in places like Romans 1-4 as an announcement. Uh, it's a declaration. What does it declare? That Jesus is Lord. That he is sinless and therefore his crucifixion is different from the tens of other thousands that have taken place. His crucifixion is, a, is as a payment for sin. So yes, the resurrection is very, very important in the history of the church. It's what distinguishes Jesus from all the other Uh, even, quote-unquote, miracle workers, Uh, some who are phony miracle workers who operate under the power of the evil one, like the magicians in Egypt during the time of Moses. And then there were true miracle workers that uh, worked under the power of God. 
Uh, somebody might say, well, why is his resurrection so unique? You know, Elijah raised someone from the, from the dead. Elisha raised someone from the dead. Peter raised someone from the dead. Paul raised someone from the dead. What, what makes his so unique? Well, Jesus didn't simply raise someone to life. He was the first fruits of those risen from the dead. He came out of the grave in a resurrected body, a supernatural miracle body that could walk right through a wall. And yet it was in one sense real. It was solid. He said, come and put your hands here. This is not a spirit. This is real, a real body. And he ate in their presence and so forth. And so Jesus really fulfilled the capstone prophecy of the Old Testament, and that was the resurrection from the dead. God illustrated it as far back as uh, the, the Genesis flood where Noah's ark rested on the top of Mount Ararat on the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. So God gives all these different pictures throughout the Old Testament, direct prophecies, and ultimately uh, Jesus did what the scripture said. So yes, it's very, very important. And many a skeptic has been converted just by examining the evidences for the resurrection. Indeed, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. As this listener has, she writes, many people are talking about the young woman with brain cancer who decided to uh, end her life before putting her family and herself through any more suffering. She was fighting for that choice for everyone and wants to be, uh, wants that to be continued after her death, which occurred last Saturday. How do you respond to that, Pastor? I know from my faith, this woman writes that it is wrong and that uh, the time of death is in God's timing. But many have asked me. Well, it's a good question. And we're living in a day much like the day of judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so people have reasoned their way into sin. And that's precisely what she did. She did an evil thing. It was a wicked thing that she did. Let's just call it what it is. It is sin. It is wicked. It was an expression of human depravity. And if our culture opens the door to that, then we become judges of what life is admissible and what life is not worth living. Oh, let's get rid of this person. They have Alzheimer's and let's just, you know, give them something to drink or inject them with some fluid that will stop their heart in a few minutes. Or this person, you know, they, their usefulness is gone. Why don't, why, don't we, why don't we go ahead and exterminate them? Listen, there are provisions in Obamacare that have yet to be implemented and some things that will begin to unfold in 2017 if it's not uh, repealed that are really frightening. Uh, They are frightening in that someone else will make potentially some of those decisions for people that you love. And so more and more is a culture because we are a culture that worships self and a culture of convenience. Uh, We may do our death in a little more sophisticated way but it's just as pagan as what the Canaanites did. Uh, they worshipped the god Molech, and they offered their little babies in the fire. Um, we're doing something a little different, a little more uh, medically savvy, but we're worshipping the god of convenience, the god of self, and so we're aborting our babies, and we're going to you know, kill sick people and give people you know, this freedom and and it's really, it's amazing because when a medical doctor graduates from medical school, he takes an oath to preserve life. And it's really sad that there are medical doctors in some states that now have the freedom to take life. 
And it is an evil and it's a blight on our land. And again, the only solution to change this way of thinking is conversion. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. His old life has passed away and all things have become new. And as there are fewer and fewer truly genuinely converted people in a culture, then the light begins to diminish and darkness takes over. The salt that preserves righteousness loses its savor because there's not much to go around. And evil has a holiday. And so the way to change this way of thinking is for Christians like those listening to my voice right now who are faithful to share the gospel. If everyone shared the gospel like you that may be listening to me and just take it out of the broad sense and just put it in your own life. If everyone shared the gospel, the plan of salvation, the death, burial and resurrection like you personally do, then uh, are we making forward movement as a nation? That's the problem. We've stopped sharing the gospel. I had a man at our table, our lunch table on Sunday, and there were new members, and they said they went to a church in this town for three years. And he said, the pastor never opened the Bible, and I never once heard the plan of salvation. And he came to the Men's Wildlife Supper and heard the plan of salvation and found Christ and ended up uh, coming to our church, and I was privileged to baptize him. But that's the problem, is in these seeker-sensitive movements, that produce numbers, the gospel is no longer being shared. And Christians are no longer faithfully trying to reach out to their neighbors and their friends. And so the, the, we're, we're in a downward spiral. And uh, the solution is not first and foremost political. Uh, po- uh, the political realm will reflect the moral realm of a nation. And so if a nation is healthy spiritually, or has a respect for things like life. For instance, we have, um, I wrote my son's name in on one of the seats here for a candidate who's running. Um, he's unopposed, um, and he has uh, basically been in favor of uh, allowing women 20 weeks and older in the state of South Carolina to have an abortion. And so there was a bill that came down. In fact, there are three African-American pastors in South Carolina who voted in favor. And one of them is here in, you know, Buford County. And they voted in favor of these little babies experiencing pain. This was not a bill to eliminate abortion in South Carolina. It was a bill that basically said, we recognize now medically that little babies in the womb, it's a proven fact, 20 weeks or above, I think you can argue much earlier, but it's a proven fact, 20 weeks or above experience real pain and suffering during an abortion. And so the rule was basically to say, look, we want to stop this. But here were three pastors, mind you, And I wonder if their congregations are aware of what is going on. And if you want to find out who these people are, who my own senator that represents me, my state senator, there's 47 in South Carolina, blocked this bill. Um, So there's representatives, there's senators in the state of South Carolina, and a lot of Christians don't know even what some of these pastors are doing, and it's really to our shame But if you go to Palmetto Family Council, they are the um, kind of an arm of focus on the family. But since focus on the family is a 501c3, 
and they're non-political, what they've done is they've created in states all across the country a political arm so that they could educate Christians on issues. And if you go to their website, Orrin Smith is the president of that organization up there in Columbia, it lists every single representative and senator in the state of South Carolina. And they have a report card, so to speak, on how they voted on the moral social issues. And it's really sad that we have people in Beaufort County because I know some of my African-American friends probably don't know what their own pastors are doing. And we need to root these people out. We need to get them out of office and put good people in there that respect human life. But we're in a society of death and we should do everything that we can to voice our opinion. But the ultimate solution is the preaching of the gospel. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, We had a question that was left over from last week. Uh, This uh, listener called in right at the last minute wanting to know when mediums give a reading and they get the information right, who is giving the information to them? The devil. The devil is. The devil has power. And the devil many times knows precisely what has happened. And so, for instance, the police in some counties, uh, for instance, in Los Angeles County, they use mediums to help solve murders. And they'll go to a medium and they'll say, you know, can you give us some help on this particular murder? And the medium will come up with an answer. And then when they run it down, they've proven that the medium was right. Where did they get the answer? Well, from the devil, from a demon who is operating through the medium. Remember, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. Some murder uh, is uh, not directly related to the devil. It's just fallen, sinful, evil man uh, exercising his free will. Some murder is prompted by the devil. Demons and uh, holy angels, if you could see their number, we'd be astounded. They're all over the universe, and there is a spiritual war that is going on in the heavenly places. Uh, And so if we could pull back the curtain of heaven and see what God's armies are doing, we would be absolutely astounded. And so the devil sometimes will give an answer uh, through his uh, servants, through his mediums who are interfacing with demons. Why? To give these people credibility. So people say, wow, that person. They knew the answer, and they solved the murder for the Los Angeles Police Department. This must be something that we need to listen to and follow. And and so the devil will many times give credibility to his own ministry in order to do that. So, again, just because they have an answer and even the right answer doesn't mean that it comes from God. Many times a demon may be directly involved in a murder and inspired the murder. And, yes, they have all the information. They were there watching the murder. And uh, in, 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 in moving it along through a willing subject. So that's how they're able to give uh, some of these answers as they do. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at wagp.net, or tbl rather, at wagp.net. Our next caller would like to know if God answers prayers of unsaved people. Well, yes and no, we can say definitively that he always answers the prayer of an unsaved man who's calling upon Christ for salvation. He promises that, and he asks the unsaved man to respond in faith that he will do that, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when Paul in Romans 10 quotes that Old Testament passage from the prophet Joel, he contextualizes it to the Lord Jesus. 
You could paraphrase it. Whoever will call on Jesus's name will be saved. That's an invitation to a lost world. Whoever means whoever. And God expects the unbeliever to respond in faith and to to come to his son for their salvation. No one else but the Lord Jesus. Um, There's an illustration of a man who's on the way to Christ. He has not yet converted, but God is answering his prayer. In Acts chapter 10, we have uh, Cornelius, and the chapter opens with these words of commendation. It says, um, he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? What is it, sir? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And then he gives him instructions as to what he should do. So God tells specifically that his prayers had risen up into the heavens as a memorial to the Lord. And of course, God in his sovereignty uh, dispatches Peter via a vision, and he dispatches uh, Cornelius through this angel, and he brings the two of them together so that he might hear the plan of salvation. When you come to, and you can read that in the 10th chapter, in the 11th chapter, Peter goes back and he reports to the Jerusalem council and um, what they're absolutely astounded over what happened. Uh, he, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send a Joppa and have Simon who is called Peter brought here and he shall speak words to you. Listen, by which you shall be saved, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And of course they're astounded, the Jewish people, because um, Cornelius and all his relatives received the Holy Spirit just like they did on the day of Pentecost. And so he concludes, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in the way? And they all heard this and they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. What was so amazing and astounding to them was not that a Gentile could be saved. In fact, that was the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. What was astounding to them was that a Gentile could come into salvation on the same level as a Jew. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, it's all Jewish people who are converted. And uh, the Jewish people for centuries had an inside track, so to speak, with the Lord. And God had chosen them as the covenant people. And of course, what Paul tells us in the New Testament in places like Ephesians, uh, something that God had planned but he had not yet revealed, was that he would remove the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and he would make them one people. And so God did that and does that in the church today, in the body of Christ. He brings all these different ethnicities and races and nations together, and he makes us one people through the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. But here's the point. Peter, when he recounts it, says that he was given this instruction, send a job and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, that he may speak words to you by which you will be saved. So that tells me that Cornelius was not yet saved when he's making his alms and his prayer to God that God said had risen as a memorial to him. So again, I think he was responding to the revelation that he knew 
And he responded to that revelation as much as he knew. And there was a principle taught in Romans 1 and Romans 2 that light responded brings more light. And so when a man responds to the light that he does have, God gives him more light and ultimately the plan of salvation. And that's what happened to this man. Now, I will say that all of the promises in the New Testament in terms of hearing prayer and answering prayer are primarily given to God's people, except promises like someone calling upon Christ for salvation. God gave his people who are born again some clear promises that they can hold on to in reference to prayer. And in fact, typically the the passages in the Bible in the Old Testament that are in reference to um, God not hearing prayer are in reference to God's people, not lost people. And so, for instance, in the Psalms, uh, the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Uh, And who is he speaking? He's speaking to God's people. Not if I sin, but if I cling to sin, if I hold on to sin, God chooses not to listen. And so your sin has made a separation between you and your God, Isaiah said to the Jewish people, so that he does not hear. And so if we're resisting the will of God through choices we're making, while God may want to hear our prayers, sometimes he does not hear the prayers of believers until they get their heart right. And so even the Apostle Peter, when he gives these passages on uh, the husband-wife relationship and how we should respond to each other, um, he said, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your and yours plural there, meaning husband and wife, may not be hindered. And so the principle applies both ways. A wife's prayers can be hindered because of the way she deals with her husband and a husband's prayers can be hindered because of the way he deals with his wife. So again, a lot of the prohibitions of God not hearing are given to God's people. Uh, The promises for God hearing are given primarily to God's people. So you cannot definitively say that God does not hear the prayer of an unsaved man. Sometimes God responds to the prayer of an unsaved man because he wants to bring that unsaved person to the gospel. And God shows what the Protestant reformers called common grace. They would take passages like from the Sermon on the Mount where he causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, his sun to shine on both. That's the common grace of God. And why does God exercise it? Well, the goodness of God, Paul says in Romans 2, is to lead us to repentance. And included in the goodness of God might be the answer of a mother on her knees, though lost, crying and begging God to save and to spare a child that is sick. And God does it. And he shows his goodness to bring about repentance. Now, not everyone responds to the general grace of God. We obviously know they do not. Uh, but they can. Uh, So it's just wrong to say God never hears the prayer of a lost man uh, because the Bible does not teach that. I would say as a general principle, he does not hear the prayer of a lost man, but he certainly can. And he and his wisdom knows when that prayer needs to be answered. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Aiden from Albany, Georgia writes, Can a Christian lose their salvation? 
I think the answer is no, based on a plain reading of John 10, 26 through 30 and Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. But I am interested in what you think and scripture you cite to support such a position. Well, I would agree with you. No, someone cannot lose their salvation. And you quote the Gospel of John, and uh, John repeatedly all the way through his Gospel affirms the eternal security of the believer. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, and it's a present tense, meaning have right now, eternal life. He will later say in John six forty seven, he that believes has eternal life. So there is a future dimension to eternal life that we'll experience in heaven when our salvation is totally completed and we'll be with the Lord literally in his physical presence. Um, But right now there is a dimension of salvation called eternal life. And that's why God describes it in a present tense. So if eternal life is something I can have right now, it's got to be more than heaven. So what is eternal life? Jesus defined it in John 17, three is knowing God, knowing the Lord having a relationship with him. So if I can have this relationship right now, and it's called eternal, and the same word, by the way, ionion for eternal is the same word that modifies eternal death. In Matthew's gospel, the 25th chapter, it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy to describe the eternal God. So to say that our life in Christ is not eternal is to say that God's not eternal or hell is not eternal. And the Bible affirms all three are eternal. So how can you lose something that's eternal? That's an oxymoron. That's a total impossibility. It's a contradiction of terms to say I can lose something that is eternal. And so Jesus gave many promises um, And he gave some clear promises that we need to cling to, that we need to hold to. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, there it is again, has eternal life right now, present tense, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Later on, the next chapter, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man shall give to you. You don't earn it, he gives it. Salvation is a gift for in him, the father, even God has set his seal of approval. They said, well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. It's not the work of man. It's the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then he will say in the same sixth chapter, as affirming as it can be, truly, truly, he who believes has eternal life. He says in the 37th verse, all, all. That means everyone, all that the father gives me shall come to me and everyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what's the will of him of the father who sent you, Jesus? This is the will of him of the father who sent me that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who believes the son or beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up in the last day. There's no leakage in there from every person who responds in genuine faith. And I say genuine because there's a lot of pseudo faith. And that's why people, Christians have concluded that you can lose salvation because they do theology by experience rather than by the scripture. Scripture is our final authority, not experience. And so they look at, you know, Joe, who is a member of their church and a deacon and active, and now he renounces Christ and he's a Buddhist. They say, we see he was a Christian, but he no longer is. No, he was never a Christian, not in the truest sense. 
And again, there are passages like 1 John 2, 18 and 19. If, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us indicates that they were not of us. And so John affirms that if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, quote unquote, you never had it to begin with. Perseverance of the saints is a fruit of conversion. You're not saved by persevering. But Jesus can say, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Why? Because he knows that if you're genuinely saved, you will persevere. So what I would say to this caller is you might want to go to the searchthescriptures.org website. You can download the phone app. If you have a smartphone, you can listen to the message in the Back to Basics series. And it's the first lesson. I think there are three messages on assurance of salvation and eternal security. And I go through verses that people use um, to affirm this truth and then verses that people use out of context to deny this truth. And it will give you a very holistic approach to what God's Word says. Good question. Let's go to our live caller who's waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead, caller. Uh, Hello. God bless you guys. Are you there? Yeah, we're here. Thanks for calling. Sorry. We Uh, had a technical problem. Thanks so much. Uh, I I wondered if you could discuss... um, uh, the right to bear arms and the right uh, for Christians to defend themselves, maybe on a personal level and, and on a national level. And then I know that, that you've preached on that before, Pastor. I just wonder if you can direct me where to go and search the Scriptures website uh, to find those sermons. And I'm going to hang up if I can and listen offline. Thank sure. You. Yeah. I, in fact, I just preached a message on this because uh, for the last two and a half years, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Romans. And so what you might want to do is um, go to searchthescripture.org or, again, download the phone app and listen to the first two messages that I did in Romans 13. In the first message, I dealt with largely the issue of self-defense. And then in the second message in Romans 13, 1 through 8, I broke it down into two messages. I dealt with the subject of national defense as well. Um, God obviously gives the government the right to bear the sword, um, to take life, and he gives us the right for self-defense. Now, some have argued uh, as pacifists that um, all killing is wrong. Understand, um, not all um, murder is, ki- uh, not all killing is murder, but all murder is killing. And the problem is, is with uh, Old English, is that we don't have distinguishing words between killing and murder. And so when they read the Decalogue in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, uh, they didn't read those words. They read, you shall not kill. And so they assumed, based on that, that any kind of killing was uh, murder and uh, you didn't have a right to defend yourself. Well, you know, that's obviously not the case because God gives some very clear instruction later on in the 22nd chapter of when self-defense is indeed allowable. And so he talks about a man who breaks into your house and, and uh, if he breaks in and it's dark and it's night and you don't know what his motive is and what's behind him and you end up taking his life, then you're not guilty. But if the sun has risen on the house and you can see what he's doing and your life is not being threatened and you take his life, then God says you've committed murder. And so um, a few years ago, it was all over talk radio, conservative talk radio, largely about that man in Texas who said he'd watch his next door neighbor's home and um, two men 
I think they were from some uh, South American country that had come over the border and they were breaking into the next door neighbor's home and he took his gun and he called the police and he said, there's two people breaking into my neighbor's home and, you know, I'm going to shoot him. And of course the police said, please don't do that. We're on the way. We're just a few minutes away. Don't shoot him. I'm going to shoot him. And, you know, I'm warning him and he shot him and killed him. And he was exonerated under Texas law. But he wasn't exonerated under God's law because, number one, his life was not being threatened. And he should have allowed them to have taken the physical property and let the police dealt with them if the police were able to get him. But he had no right to take their life. So uh, what is allowable on a personal level is also allowable on a national level. If a man sees a, uh, some evil man hurting a little child or an innocent woman and they do nothing, they're a coward. And um, they need to have their head examined. If you see some adult, you know, threatening the life or attempting to kill the life of a little child and you do nothing, that's terrible. Uh, You have a right. Listen, if someone breaks into your house tonight and they try to murder your wife and your children, you say, well, I'm a pacifist and I don't believe in killing. And, you know, look. Um, you have every right to defend your life and to defend your family if your life or their life is potentially in harm. And what God allows on an individual level, he allows on a local level. Now, God does not allow you to take the law into your hands if someone murders your loved one. God gives the power to punish uh, in a non-self-defense situation to the government, not to you. And so... Uh, In those situations, God has given the government the right to bear the sword. And the reason is, is because man is by nature fallen. Who wants to live in a town, in a state, in a nation where there's no police, where there's no army? No one does. Why do we acknowledge the need? Because we are directly or indirectly acknowledging the depravity and the fallenness of man. That man is by nature evil and has the capacity to do virtually anything. So anyway, if you listen to the first two th- sermons on Romans 13, I go through all of the passages people the passages people use out of context, turn the other cheek, so forth. Go through all of those in great detail, and I think you'd find that really helpful. So let's go to the next question. 525-1859. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick and Pastor Berge. How are you guys? Today? Doing fine, thanks. Excellent. Um, I am a fairly um, recent uh, Christian, and I'm having some issues with uh, surrendering control in my life. And I just want to know, you know, where I can look in the Bible to find teaching on this, so I can try and and streamline my walk and and try and you know, lead my family a little better than I am. Obviously. Okay. Um, obviously it's pretty broad without going into any specifics. Uh, but what you might want to do is listen to a message. I just preached a couple months ago on Romans 12, one and two, where Paul said, I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So one, it begins with the mercies of God. Uh, The admonition here is based on the fact that God has shown us mercy in Christ. And so Romans 12, one is really a turning point in the book of Romans. 
and that he has spent, in one sense, 11 chapters dealing with the mercies of God in a broad sense to all of humanity, in a more specific sense in 9 through 11 through Israel. And then he makes application based on those 11 chapters that as we understand the grace of God, that God is worthy of our presenting ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Uh, And this is why it's important to grow in grace. This is why it's important to really get grounded in the grace of God. This is one of the reasons we have the discovery class at Community Bible Church. It's a 45-week course that is basically structured so a person can begin any week they want. A lot of people listen who are not, you know, in the local area and, um, They're unable to come to that class, and so we've put at least uh, 30 of the 45 weeks are now online under the Back to Basics series at searchthescriptures.org. And really, if someone listens to those messages, they're going to grow in grace. You see, they're saving grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man boast. That's what we might call saving grace. But then there's also growing grace. And so in Second Peter 3.18, the apostle says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The writer of the Hebrews will say, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And that's what Paul's really doing in the first 11 chapters. He's strengthening our hearts with the grace of God. And for a lot of people, a life-changing study has been the book of Romans, where they move from infantile Christians really, and they grow strong and deep in the grace of God. And so you might want to say, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to listen to every message in the book of Romans, and I'm going to take notes, and um, I'm going to make that part of my quiet time every day. And I would encourage you to apply the second part of this admonition in that he says, don't be shaped by this world. So you have to ask, what shapes me? What conforms me? What makes me into the world's mold? Um, and then he says, be transformed. And the Greek word is metaphorometo. And we get our word directly from it, metamorphosis. And you know what a metamorphosis is, where that butterfly leaves the chrysalis and turns in from a caterpillar into that chrysalis into a beautiful butterfly. And it's, a, it's an inner transformation that takes place. And so God wants that inner transformation. And if that's not an ongoing thing, you're never going to be successful and you'll never be able to lead your family. You know, I I meet people all the time who are just in dead churches. And sometimes, you know, I'll share the plan of salvation to them and lead them to Christ. And I'll say, well, listen, you need to be a part of a Bible-believing church. Why don't you come to Community Bible Church or or at least another Bible-believing church? Oh, but pastor... You know, my family's been going here. You know, my grandmother went here. My mother went here. I've been going here. We've been here for three generations. And they're all buried out back, you know. And, and, you know, we just go here every week. And that's just what we do. Look, if your mother and grandmother could get up and leave, they would. But they can't. But you should. If you can sit in a church for year after year after year after year after year and never hear the plan of salvation or never really begin to grow and mature, you're in the wrong church. Look, there's a lot of good Bible-believing churches. We're not the only one, but you need to be in a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. That's a starting place. Uh, That's a non-negotiable if a man is leading his family. And it doesn't matter if he's got family members there and they're all sad that they're leaving. Let them be sad. You've got a slice of time to raise your kids 
And so being in a good church is a non-negotiable. And your being in the word of God on a regular basis is a non-negotiable. You just have to make that a priority. You will do the things that are important to you. We all do. We'll do the things that are important to us. And you need to make as a high, high priority on your list, spending time alone with God each day. And if you don't know where to start, start listening to the book of Romans. Go through the whole thing and listen to it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and you're going to take off and you'll be able to lead your family well. Or listen to the Back to Basics series if you've never been through that. That would be also a great thing that will really give you some of the mechanics of how to walk with the Lord. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, we've got about 15 minutes left in the program, and Rick from Hilton Head Island would like to know uh, as many verses of Scripture that you can offer that show that the unborn as well as children before the age of accountability, which only God knows, will spend eternity in heaven with all other true believers. Well, there's a lot of Scriptures on this, and again, uh, this is where... Um, the Back to Basics series is really helpful uh, that we offer at Community Bible Church because the latter half of the course is what we call Christian apologetics, and we deal with what we uh, have termed the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. And we uh, address one of the questions we address is, what about people who've never heard the gospel? Uh, How does God deal with them? And then we deal with those who can't hear the gospel. And so uh, little children who are aborted, little children who are miscarried, they're individuals, they're people from the moment of conception. Every woman listening to me who has had an abortion, and hopefully you have found God's forgiveness. Every person listening to me who has lost a child, be they an infant or a little baby or, uh, or miscarried, you will see that baby someday. The Bible gives this affirmation. There are several passages that affirm this. Number one, the Lord Jesus himself likened the kingdom of God to heaven. And so a good text of scripture would be Matthew 18, uh, verses um, 1 through 14. Uh, the disciples ask him a question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me. So God sees even in their lack of understanding of faith in him, you cause that person to stumble. and It would be better for a heavy millstone to be hung around his neck and that that person be drowned in the deepest sea. Um, he says a little bit later in this same chapter, what do you think if anyone has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And it turns out that he finds truly, I say, he rejoices over that more than the 99, which had not gone astray. Thus, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that these little ones may perish. That's what he says. Couldn't make it any clearer in this discussion on children. Uh, in Luke nine, Uh, In verse, um, if you want to jot it down, 46 to 48, and an argument arose among them as to which one would be the greatest. They had this discussion on a number of occasions, if you've read the Gospels. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, uh, so they're not coming directly to him, 
um, they're having this discussion, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, took a child, and in this case, he stood the child by him. So this is not an infant. The child's able to stand next to him, and he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, uh, this is the one who is great. Uh, In Mark's gospel, in the ninth chapter, uh, let me find the verse here in Mark 9, and it's verse uh, 36. And taking a child, he set him before him. And taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. So for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to a little child, Jesus as the truth never uses an untruth to teach a truth. He always uses truth to teach truth. Now, there have been different people who have said that little children go to heaven for different reasons. Luther taught on the basis of infant baptism that it washed away sin, uh, original sin, so to speak, and that the parents, when they came, they came in a surrogate faith. I don't think that's true. I don't think infant baptism, one, is taught. I don't think infant baptism has any power to wash away any sin. I I think Luther was mistaken on this. Uh, The Bible is clear that... um, you know, an infant, uh, a parent can't make a decision on behalf of its infant. And so this whole idea of a parent making a covenant deal with God on behalf of the infant for his salvation, you just can't do it. Uh, there was Pelagius, we call it Pelagianism. And um, he taught that, you know, there was a certain innocence in child. No, children are born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, in Romans five twelve, uh, we all sinned in and with Adam. That would include every infant that has been that's going to have birth today. That infant it was in the loins of Adam and chose with Adam to sin against God, and that's why Ephesians two and verse three says we are by nature children of wrath. But God, knowing that little children are unable to comprehend the plan of salvation demonstrates an aspect of grace to them. And there are other illustrations in the Old Testament. You might want to jot down 2 Samuel 12, if you remember the occasion. Uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, The uh, child uh, got sick as a disciplinary act of God. God went to the thing that David's heart was captured with. And this little child got sick, and David fasted and prayed and sought the Lord, thinking that maybe God would heal the child. And God said no. And um, when he perceived through the whispering of his servants that the child has died, he, he got up and he, he, he washed his face and went and ate a meal. And his servants, of course, were afraid initially to tell him because they thought he's so despondent. If we tell him the child's died, he, he might commit suicide. He might hurt himself. They felt like he was so down. And, uh, and they're kind of baffled by his response when the child dies and he finds out. And, and he said, uh, they come to him and they said, what is this thing that you have done? This is Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, and I'm reading beginning in verse 21. What is this thing you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But while the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said... Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? It's a rhetorical question, obviously not. But then he makes this statement, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He can't come to me, but someday I'm going to go to him. 
I'm going to see this child today. He understood this as God's anointed, that God had his hand of mercy upon this child. Now, some people say, well, that's because, you know, David was a believer and and this child fell under the covenant. And, you know, um, and so God was mercy to him because he was under the covenant of Israel. Well, no, I, I don't think it's limited to that. In the book of Jonah Uh, God deals with the Ninevites. And of course, the greatest revival in all of human history took place in a place you would not expect it to take place, in a place called Nineveh. And uh, after all these people repent and get saved, and Jonah goes into a little pout, and and God says to Jonah, this is Jonah chapter 4, do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? He said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand? Not to mention, he says, many animals. You want me to, you know, just destroy these people? Uh, If I destroy these people, I'm going to kill all the animals and I'm going to kill 120,000 children. It's a Hebraism. They don't know the difference between their left and their right hands. And you want me to wipe all them out? You can have compassion on things that are temporal. And God illustrated the temporal nature of uh, this plant by allowing it to grow and come up overnight and then to die. But you won't have compassion on something that's truly lasting and eternal. And so he's teaching him a lesson. Did he learn the lesson? Of course he did. He he wrote the book of Jonah. Uh, He he gave us the book of Jonah. So yes, he he did learn the lesson. But my point is, is that God has compassion on little children. In the book of Ecclesiastes, um, chapter 6, it says, uh, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he, even if the other man lives a thousand years. So again, when you put all these passages together, I think you can affirm that little children Uh, God is merciful to them. You mentioned an age of accountability. There is obviously no age that is given in Scripture. Maybe uh, it would be better to say, uh, to lift some of the ambiguity, a condition of accountability. Because God alone knows when the soul is conditioned where uh, the person is able to understand with their mind and believe. And we could put in this same category, maybe some very severely vegetative people aborted babies, miscarried babies, and so forth. Uh, We'll meet these people in heaven. In fact, God says for every tribe, tongue, and nation, we'll meet people. And one of the ways heaven will be populated will be with children who died before they were able to comprehend the gospel. Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. Abigail would like to know, do you believe that Jesus had any siblings? This morning I was reading in the book of James and was wondering if James was the brother of Jesus. What is your opinion Also, did Jesus have any sisters? I understand that some believe he had no siblings, and it seems that some of his half-brothers had siblings, but no sisters are mentioned. It came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom 
and these miraculous powers. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In addition to this text, he's already said in Matthew 12 and in verse 46 uh, of his brothers and his sisters who are outside, aren't you going to pay them attention? And and uh, in another parallel text in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6 in, um, in verse 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon and not uh, and not his sisters here with us. And so, yes, he had a brother named James. He had a brother named Joseph, which for short would be Joses, J-O-S-E-S, um, which, you know, because obviously uh, they didn't want to confuse the two. Sometimes if a dad and a son have the same name, the son goes by his middle name or whatever. So one brother went by the short name. Matthew gave us the longest name. He had a brother named Judas, um, which uh, is, uh, he writes the book of Judas. Now in our English Bibles, we call it the book of Jude. In most languages of the world, they don't call it the book of Jude. They call it the book of Judas. Why? Because it's the book of Judas. It's the same word used here. But to eliminate confusion and knowing that the chapter titles are not inspired. A lot of people go with the shortened version in the English Bible. And he had a brother named Simon. Then he had sisters. We don't know how many. So there have basically been three views in the history of the church. I think I can get this through in the next minute. Some said that his brothers and sisters uh, were from a prior marriage that Joseph was married beforehand and um, Mary was a perpetual virgin that's the view of the Orthodox Church. Uh, it comes from a, a guy in the third century, Epiphanius, and so it's called the Epiphanian view um, that the brothers and sisters mentioned here are from a prior marriage that Joseph had and his wife died and then he married Mary. Uh, then there's the view that the Roman Catholic Church takes, the Hieronymian view, which basically says that no, uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin. And that these who are being mentioned are his cousins. And a guy by the name of Jerome, through his translation of the Bible, in Jerome's name in Latin is Heromian. And so we speak of the Heromanian view. Um, and I, I don't agree with that. I, I just, it's, there's a word in Greek for cousins. He could have used that. He didn't. There's no reason to use it. Uh, the standard view held throughout the church is the Helvidian view from a man by the name of Helvidius. And we can read some of his writings who lived early on in the church. And he affirmed what he thought the apostles believed and taught that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. So Joseph kept her a virgin until, until she gave birth to Jesus. Then they had normal marital relations and they had other children. And uh, we read of them in the scriptures are actually named. Though actually, technically, though, they'd be half-brothers and sisters. That's right, half-brothers and sisters, because Jesus didn't have a human father. Thank you. We're out of time, and uh, we're glad that you could join us today for the Bible Line. And you can go online and listen to this later at searchthescriptures.org or at wagp.net. Have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you walk with Christ. 